From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. 2018 was a busy year at the state capitol. And with November's blue wave election, what's in store for 2019? We'll ask two observers of state politics, Dan Walters with Cal Matters and Scott Lay with The Nooner, California's political update. Additional funding for the Matty Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Matty Institute, it's the Matty Report with Executive Director of the Matty Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. As Jerry Brown cleared his desk for the final time as governor of California, he tweeted the following, 16 years and nearly 20,000 bills later, the desk is clear. Hashtag Eureka. Um, so we're joined by two observers of state politics to get their take on the past legislative session. Dan Walters, of course, longtime columnist on state politics, now with Cal Matters, and Scott Lay, who writes The Nooner, a daily afternoon update on California pol- political and legislative news. Welcome to The Matter Report. So, uh, Scott, let me start with you. Uh, you're the new one here. So let me ask you this. So lawmakers introduced more than two dozen bills responding to the Me Too movement uh, against sexual harassment and misconduct. Uh, what was signed? What was vetoed? Um, what's your takeaway? My takeaway was there was a great willingness to change policies and procedures, which are essentially we're changing ourselves now, and whatever happens in the future will happen in the future, uh, because the legislation that was largely proposed uh, would have affected private businesses, uh, in particular. Um, the prohibition of binding arbitration agreements, for example, in employment contracts. Uh, that will be back again this session, but you know, uh, in particular, the tech community uh, gets really concerned when you start talking about bu- uh, banning binding arbitration. Yeah, and the arbitration thing is interesting is one of the people who are really supporting that, that uh, banning that was uh, Jennifer Seibel Newsom. The new governor's wife. So right. that's going to be interesting. What do you, what do you think? What's, the, what's your well, take? Well, it's on interesting this? that that bill's an interesting enough. It's the only one, only bill that the state chamber of commerce uh, opposed, call, calling them job killers. It was the only one of the job killers that made it to Jerry Brown's desk, and he vetoed it, which meant the state chamber of commerce did a hundred percent kill ratio this year. They've got a pretty good batting average. Yeah, and, um, and, <laughs> but uh, I think the thing about the the Me Too bills was. Some of them made it to Jerry. Some of them he, you know, he took some. He, it's a typical Jerry, pat on the left, pat on the right, as we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. Uh, I think the most interesting one, though, is that it does kind of make it easier to sue for sexual harassment. It, it expands the opportunity to sue. At least that's what the business community sees like. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, whether it does result in a failure yeah, of law. One of the ways he did that, they said there was a, a single incident um, of harassment could constitute enough. And so yeah. it's a nibbling at that. Of course, he didn't, he didn't sign them all. He said some of them went too far. Right. And so, right. You know. Well, let's talk, let's talk about another thing. Um, immigration. That's, that's primarily uh, a federal issue, uh, Dan, but uh, it didn't stop the legislature from weighing in. What happened there? Well, most of the fight over immigration is being waged in the courts by the Attorney General, uh, uh, Javier Becerra. But there were a couple of bills that got to Jerry that he vetoed. One of them would allow uh, non-citizens to serve on boards and commissions, for example. The other one... Uh, what was the other one? I'm not, I'm, I'm it was a, a ten, I think it was one uh, where uh, he said he didn't want uh, to, to sign this bill that would prohibit any civil arrest 
of someone. That's right. The other yeah, one, the view of the bill said it would, it would, it would have prohibited arrest in the courthouse. Right. It was a word about unintended consequences. Uh, he says that a lot about bills, unintended <laughs> consequences. Well, 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 I have a write-out of the book about California politics. It's going to be called unintended consequences. But we did have, I, I, believe, I believe it was in Fresno County, where um, ICE agents were actually patrolling the halls. They weren't in a courtroom, but they were patrolling the halls. The sheriff, the sheriff down there is, is supportive of that. But did, uh, Scott, let me ask you this on gun control. Um, that was another area where Governor Brown continued to sign some bills, not others. What happened with gun control? Well, I mean, I, the big bill uh, I think that, that's being talked about is increase or adding the age of 21 for the purchase of long guns, uh, which aligns it with um, handguns. Still opposed greatly by the Second Amendment champions, but one that just was not defendable from a political standpoint when you said, we already do this for handguns. It's not all that big of a problem. Why not do it for long guns? Yeah. And there, there, was, another, there was another bill that essentially makes it easier to take guns away from people who mm -hmm. look like they're going to be dangerous uh, for mental reasons, for other reasons. So they, it, it was not a, what do you call a big year in gun control. That stuff was done the previous year in some legislation and a ballot measure sponsored by the incoming governor, Gavin Newsom. That was the big gun control stuff. Uh, but uh, this year was kind of an off year for gun control. I think we did one. Wasn't there a ban on uh, certain uh, alcohol crimes uh, or certain alcohol convictions? could get you on a no-buy list. And they got the bump stocks. They took those out. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Dan. Uh, crime and, and public safety, that's always a big concern. Anything happened there? That got you know, the big one, I think, was the uh, bill that eliminates cash bail. And it was, it was, it was the latest incarnation of a several-year, I don't know, it's a loosening up or changing or modifying California's criminal laws to make them less punitive. In this case, uh, by barring uh, cash bail, supposedly people will be evaluated on their flight risk rather than they stay locked up because they can't put up bail. Now, that's going to be the subject of a referendum, which means the law will be suspended until the referendum is sponsored by the bail bond agents uh, gets uh, decided by voters in 2020. Uh, it's going to be a huge battle. There's a lot of money at stake, and uh, stay tuned on that one. One so, more on, cr on crime and punishment okay. is... Um, the tightening up of what we call the felony murder rule, uh, which is, uh, a fr you know, a first-year uh, law student learns about felony murder, which is if a murder happens or if a death happens in the uh, commission, of a commission of a felony, then you can be charged with murder. This now tightens that up and makes it, re requires more of intent or negligence of a death and not just somebody slipping on a banana peel chasing after you. Out of a convenience Yeah, and in store. fact, it, it, the way the law is, is read, either the police shoot somebody, <laughs> they shoot one of two felons that committed an armed robbery, mm -hmm. the surviving felon can be charged with murder because the police killed his partner. Yeah. Now, let me say, at the, at the, at, at, on the other side of this thing, it's also been a very valuable tool for prosecutors to get people who are involved in multi-crimes you know, involving more than one person to say, hey, we're going to go to jail on a felony murder rule if you don't tell us what went on here. And so it's, it takes a tool away from prosecutors right. okay. as well. Up next, we're going to talk about Jerry Brown's unfinished agenda, agenda, that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with two observers of state politics, Dan Walters and Scott Lay. Uh, so, Dan, uh, Cal uh, Governor Brown's uh, California water fix, the Delta Twins Tunnel project, um, remains in limbo. Um, and by the way, water bond went down. Uh, this last November. What's going to happen with the perennial issue of water? What's going to happen? Well, as we speak, literally as we speak, 
they are announcing a, a tentative deal on putting more water into the delta from farmers along the San Joaquin River watershed in return for some other stuff. I know it's just one of those uh, everybody gets a little something type deals. Uh, and it also involves some action in Washington on re, uh, uh, reauthorizing a certain law that could put more money into water in California. It's, this is a, like, the, the water like a five-cushion five billiards game going on. And then the right. part, final part of it is, of course, the tunnels that the governor wants to build underneath the San Joaquin, uh, Sacramento-San Sacramento Joaquin Delta, which is obviously, if that happens, it's affected by these other things that are happening. Everything is part of a little game to be played. You have to get everything in place. Will it happen? Will the tunnels happen? Will the deal happen? At this moment, as we're speaking here, who knows? Well, there you go. I want to ask Scott about high-speed rail. It's another one of Jerry Brown's legacy projects. Um, they've got new leadership, uh, we've got a new business plan, and we've got a highly critical report by the state auditor. What's going on with high-speed rail, you think, going forward? Well, the polling does not look good uh, at this point. If voters were asked at this point to authorize bonds for high-speed rail, they would say no. That's pretty clear in all the polling that I've mm -hmm. seen so far, and that's across the board, you know, on demographics. Well, Newsom says he seems to support this. I mean, Dan, one of the things, he's kind of saying half a loaf. Like with the twin tunnels, I'll build you one tunnel, not two. With high-speed rail, I'll build you half a high-speed rail, but not the full thing. Yeah, I mean, just one rail rather than two rails. Well, well the valley-to-valley -valley side. No, look, the, uh, Newsom has kind of been all over the map on these, both of these issues, you know, for mm -hmm. it, against it, halfway for it, halfway against it. But at a certain point, he's got to kind of fish or cut bait on the, on, the, on the train. They've got enough money maybe to finish the segment in the San Joaquin Valley from Chowchilla to an orchard near <laughs> Shafter. I, I, I think they're getting it all the way down to Bakersfield with the latest business plan. Well, in the business plan there, <laughs> but the not in plan. the construction plan. Right. That only goes to an orchard near Shafter. <laughs> and, and, uh, but that was supposed to be finished last year, and now mm. they've got an extension to 20, uh, 2022, uh, or otherwise they have to lose the federal money. But, you know, you can't go on with this thing forever. At a certain point, you have to fish or cut bait. And right now, they don't have the 20 or so billion dollars that would be necessary to connect Chowchilla with the San Jose area by tunneling through the Pacheco Pass. Well, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're and about that's the segment that it would have to be built to have a But system. they're talking about leveraging the cap-and-trade money to, to get the money to build that segment. They're talking about but they can't. the cap-and-trade money is not enough to leverage that much money. Well, that's the thing. I guess, I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Dan. There's another big issue out there, and that is this wall of debt unfunded liabilities, mm -hmm. specifically uh, public employee retirement benefits. You know, Jerry Brown's tried to do something on that issue, but it looks like the courts are really going to have the final say here with this issue on the California rule, this idea that uh, once you get this right, it's a vested right, can't be cut unless it's offset by a comparable uh, new benefit, so it really has no savings. Um, whatever the court's going to rule, Newsom and the legislature are going to have to deal with it. Not necessarily. The state does not have a pension problem. The pension problem is to be found in local governments and school mm -hmm. districts. It's their pension problem. The state itself doesn't have a problem covering its pension obligations. So there's a question whether, whether the state can do anything more than it's done the real, the, the real action would be in local government if and when the Supreme Court says the California rule that you mentioned earlier is no longer as absolute as everybody has assumed it would be. If they rule that, then it's, it opens the door for local governments to go back and renegotiate their deals with their employees and perhaps freeze pension benefits at the current level and then reduce them for work going yeah. forward. But we don't know. The court could make a very narrow ruling in the cases that are before it and leave the California rule intact. At which case, then, who knows what and, it and is. And courts have a tendency to, to nibble. They don't typically go for big bites, necessarily. They're kind of incrementally. The governor changes. actually wants a big bite. I know case. he does, but it, it's, it's, yeah. the courts may not may be a little different. Scott, let me ask this last question. I'm going to ask about another legacy is this uh, budget surplus that Brown is leaving the state. 
Um, you know, it, it seems like, you know, Brown, Governor Brown, the LAO is saying, don't, don't put this into new programs, you know, it, it could, things could go sideways in the future. But the legislature's thinking, we got to show that we're, we can do something. The new governor wants to show they can do something. It's going to be too tempting to spend that money. I, I very much likely. I, I think that, you know, uh, Governor uh, Newsom, as we're, or Governor-elect Newsom, as we're doing this taping, is actually putting the final touches on his budget, um, which has to go to bed, as we'd say, uh, by the holiday. And so they're doing it. And the good news for them is the stock market downturn over the last couple of weeks because they now have a rationale to lowball revenue numbers come January. Yeah, you, Otherwise, could almost, you could almost say that's been happening throughout you know, 2018. I mean, it's not been exactly an upswing. It's up no. and down and up and down. But so. even, even with that, we're talking about coming into a year with $5 billion of new one-time money and $11 billion of new ongoing money. Now, of the ongoing money, $1.2 billion has to be put into the budget stabilization account. Uh, another $2.1 right, mm-hmm. is already committed for for schools and other obligations. So you have about $8 billion. I could see a split the baby deal on the ongoing money of a little bit more into savings and a little bit more into new programs. There's a long list of new programs. And then spend a lot of that one-time money and make the interest uh, rates I, I guess we're yeah, going to see. Child care or early childhood education is likely to get the the lion's share of any new money. Uh, Dan, housing affordability, big deal. Uh, it's been a big challenge. What are we going to see on that issue? Well, the key to housing affordability is to remove the shackles on construction. And everybody's talked about it, uh, uh, forcing local communities to accept the housing that they otherwise wouldn't accept because of the NIMBY syndrome. Uh, whether you reform the uh, uh, Environmental Quality Act or you put some teeth into the state's housing quotas, it's tricky. It's tricky because the resistance to that housing tends to be in the coastal areas that vote Democratic. Right. And so it's very difficult for a Democratic governor and a Democratic legislature to tell these people, no, you've got to start accepting and, more housing in your neighborhood. And it's really clear that the, there isn't enough government money to fix this problem. It's going to have no, to be No, it has to be private money. Private and it, it just has to be because there's no government. Well, let me, Dan, let me ask you this. Uh, another big issue is going to be preschool for, for kids, lower middle income household. It's been discussed for several years. Is this the year it's going to happen? Definitely. In my mind, definitely. Okay. And you never say that around <laughs> right, capital. Right. But uh, the, the alignment is there. The, uh, of political interests uh, of the governor and several key legislators, and the money is there, um, that I think they're going to take might, a bite out of this apple. It's a high priority uh, among voters. And it might be the first first one up. You know, another one, education issue, Dan, is uh, adding a second year community college free for, for students. Um, first year is already free, adding a second year. Think that's going to happen? I think it's highly likely, or at least highly probable. It's, it's not terribly expensive. And uh, it is popular. The latest polling show it's one of the more popular things that government could do and a new governor could do. Yeah. Um, any comments on that? What do you think? It's it's dirt, well, I was a longtime community college lobbyist, so it, $50 million is, as we call around here, budget dust. Budget dust, right. Out of a $8 billion or so community college budget. Let me ask you this, Scott. I mean, 2018 was a horrendous year for wildfires. Uh, Jerry Brown said we're living in the new abnormal. Um, what's the likely response going to be from the legislature and the governor? Well, the first priority is to figure out what the heck to do with 2018 fires because the big bill that they passed last year, SB 901, covered fires that happened before January 1st, 2018 and fires mm-hmm. after January 1st, 2019. And there were, um, there were clear pl- reasons to do that, but they've got this donut hole uh, to fill. They have to tackle that. And then 
as part of that is the discussion of prevention going right, forward. Right. And then I think a bigger conversation of how much money the state should pony up um, for prevention as opposed to private interests. And that's a, an issue that really wasn't dealt with over the last couple of years. There are a couple of more issues in that, including whether we should be building houses near right. fire territory. And that's a <laughs> huge thing. Here we go to housing again and the NIMBY huge and all of that. Huge thing, yeah. Uh, Dan, let me ask you this. So there's some big perennial issues that you hear people talk about. Tax reform, for example. Mm -hmm. Secret reform, you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see anything on those issues this year? They're big, they're difficult, uh, bordering on impossibility. Jerry Brown talked about sequel reform as being the Lord's work, but turned out to be an agnostic on that. <laughs> and he's acknowledged the need for tax reform, but says basically, I don't want to take it on because it's too tough and you can't do it. However, uh, if we get another recession and the state's budget takes a big nosedive, that reserve fund will be quickly exhausted. Right. And we ha might have to have some more talk about trying to make California's revenues less volatile and more stable, and that means tax. Well, we do, have, we do have a, a ballot measure that's already qualified for 2020 on taxing industrial and commercial Called properties differently right. than residential. So there is a very big reason uh, to uh, negotiate uh, some sort of deal uh, this year to stop that from going to the ballot because you're talking about a $100 million cost on commercial builders. So maybe we will see something. Well, up next, we're going to talk about California's challenge to President Trump in 2019. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Well, it appeared that in last November's election, the Trump card, so to speak, for Democrats was simply being anti-Trump. Some have suggested that there's going to be a growing constellation of bills in the California legislature challenging Trump in 2019. Are we going to see that? We're talking with Dan Walters and Scott Lay about California politics. Uh, so, Scott, let me ask you this. Um, you know, immigration policies, that's a federal issue. doesn't mean the state's not going to step in and, and try to do something. Um, what do you think is going to happen in terms of the state responding to Trump on immigration? Well, the state's, I think, winning on that issue. Um, the voters are very much in favor of a path to citizenship. Uh, they get a little bit uneven about what do you do about, you know, generally the concept of undocumented immigrants coming in now, so the folks that are at the border as we tape. Um, I, I think the legislature's got their sanctuary state law now, and uh, it's in the courts. Uh, but you look at what happened in the elections in Los Angeles County where the incumbent sheriff lost largely over the issue of um, assisting the immigration and, and uh, customs enforcement um, agency uh, in, 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 uh, in immigration enforcement. So I, I think that the feeling is it is something we just don't want to touch. Both yeah. parties defend sanctuary state. And we and, don't need to go any further. And you think about immigration, how it impacts the state's economy, you know, the agriculture, service sector, et cetera. I, I want to I ask you, Dan, about health care, though. Um, that's another issue where Trump and California seem to be just part company. Uh, what do you think is going to happen out of Sacramento in opposition to Trump on health care? Well, there will be some effort to try to uh, – the, the way that the, the Trump is recasting Obamacare is going to cut some people off. Or mm -hmm. probably not cut them off, but disencourage them from joining, I should say, because without the individual mandate. In other words, so there may be an effort to try to put in a state individual mandate to prop up the Obamacare rules. The second thing I think is, is interesting is that uh, legislation that would essentially counteract the regulatory uh, pullbacks by the Trump administration, particularly on environmental stuff, by saying that you have to keep at the state level all these regulations that the Trumps are pulling back at the federal level. 
Uh, I think there'll be a lot of sentiment for that, and it, it probably will go through in some form. Yeah, I'm going to ask you, Scott, about those environmental issues. That's another area where California, of course, and President Trump are at odds. How do you think that they're going to California's going to respond to all these things at the, uh, the federal level? It's coming out of Washington uh, on the environment. I, th I think that California will test the bounds of, of um, federalism. Uh, uh, just the uh, new Texas, right? right. Texas so, to Obama is going to be California to Trump. Exactly, and and uh, the the federal administration, the Trump administration, is proposing uh, basically allowing states to establish standards under the Clean Water Act. Now, California politicians will say, no, that's bad, because California politicians are acting in the national interest. But though California will set the standards equal or higher to what they would have had under the Trump administration anyway. You know, when I was in law school, they, they always had, you know, kind of the general rule of what's happening in states, the minority rule, and, oh, by the way, what's happening in California? <laughs> so no surprise there. Um, uh, uh, Dan, what about any other political stories you think we're going to be hearing about? Well, let me say something about the Trump thing. I th at the same time all this is going on, there has to be some level of cooperation between Sacramento and Washington over things like paying for fire costs, uh, this water deal that we mm -hmm. mentioned earlier is dependent on having a signature from the President of the United States on some legislation. So we, we can get carried away too far. At the working level, the everyday level, there's still going to be a, quite a bit of cooperation between the two states as, as well. You can't bite the hand that feeds you. I mean, you think that's going to be so it's going to, Newsom's going to have to be kind of be careful about how far they go with this? Uh, he, he will. Uh, but also, we're as soon as the holidays are over, we're in the midst of the 2020 election, and we're talking about a March 3rd uh, primary election uh, for the presidential race and all other races so, here in California. So we're so going to see all the, we're going to see all these politicians trooping to California for a change. Not just to just to raise money, but to actually ask for votes. Yeah, and 2019 <laughs> is going to be a busy, busy year in that regard. Well, I want to thank our guest Dan Walters with Cal Matters, Scott Lay with the Nooner. Up next, a look back at the November election: who and what won, and why. You're listening to The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. The November election has been referred to as a political tsunami. Was it as consequential as all that? We'll ask Mindy Romero with the USC Price School of Public Policy, John Myers with the LA Times, Laurel Rosenhall with Cal Matters, and Joel Fox of Fox and Hounds. Additional funding for The Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, Harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. So voter turnout in California's midterm election was the highest in decades. Who voted and why? We'll ask our guest, Mindy Romero, who's the director of the California Civic Engagement Project at USC's Price School of Public Policy. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me. So, uh, general voter turnout, how did it go? It went great. It was the highest, as you said, that we've seen in decades. Quite exciting. Everybody had, uh, I think, lots of speculation, a lot of, you know, um, uh, thoughts and um, some people putting wagers on uh, what we would see. I think and people were worried because 2014, the last midterm, was so low. This one just blew it out of the water. It was a record low year, and now we've gone to something that is the highest in decades, and right. it's quite incredible to see these numbers and I'll, I'll let you ask. Yeah, me. well, let, let, me, let me ask you this. You know, there's a lot of reporting about this growing gulf nationally between uh, party identification of white voters with college degrees and those without college degrees. Kind of, they refer to this as the diploma divide. Yeah. Is that happening in California? It, you know what? It happens um, certainly in California to some degree. And if you're talking about um, 
turnout or partisan affiliation? Uh, both. both. Either one. T take either one. Okay. Well, partisan affiliation is a little bit different because California generally is obviously party registration um, much more skewed towards the Democrats than the Republicans. Republicans are now a third right behind no party preference. Just fell behind no party preference. Um, in terms of turnout, it's, it's long been the case that um, we see folks that are, regarding race, ethnicity, whites vote more than folks of color, and um, those that are of higher income or higher education in this case vote more. It used to be though that the higher, level higher educated whites would probably vote Republican, and then lower educated whites would vote Democrat. That's completely been flipped, it seems like. I, I wouldn't say necessarily. I think it's, I think um, we hear a lot about that regarding Trump and Trump supporters. Right. Certainly, uh, I think it still depends on what part of the country you're looking at. California um, is unique. I, I will I will grant you uh, that. Yes. So um, every election cycle, we hear the same thing, and that is, this is the year that the youth are going to turn out to vote. It's kind of like uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football. And every year, people seem to be disappointed, but maybe not this year. Um, no. Finally, come out to vote. I think so. Uh, so there was speculation about the women's vote, about the Latino vote, about the youth vote, pretty much you name it, right? Mm -hmm. And while we still don't, and we won't have for a little while longer, um, detailed data on race, ethnicity, and so forth, just looking at those big turnout numbers that we ended up for the general population, mm -hmm. it tells us that it's a pretty, pretty good bet um, that we had a more representative electorate. So when you have higher turnout overall, generally speaking, it means that underrepresented groups not only voted more too, but that they closed the representation gap. And the, and the gap has been fairly large. I mean, the, I make it simplistic here, but basically young people generally don't vote. Older, Very low numbers. Low numbers. And, and older you know, males uh, generally do vote. Well, take 2014. Mm -hmm. Now granted, again, a record mm -hmm. low turnout rate, but those age 18 to 24, their eligible voter turnout was only 8% in 2014. Some, I don't know if this is correct, but someone c cited this, a stat, fact that there were more people arrested in that age group than voted on a percentage base. I'm not sure, but it gives you, it paints a picture of how few of, of that it, age group are it, voting. It, it paints a picture. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that comparison, um, <laughs> but it does, it does paint a picture. But you know what? This election, it won't be 8%, clearly. Right. And once we get into the detailed data, what's going to be really exciting is we're expecting some level, again, of that gap to decrease. So we used to be more representative than, than we've seen in a very long time, certainly in a midterm election. Um, just how good? Uh, you know, uh, remains to be seen. Remains to be seen, but it's a, a pretty good bet that youth turned out, and certainly anecdotally across the state, we've heard a lot uh, on election day, late on election day, young people using conditional voter registration for the first time. Yeah, the last minute voter. That's, that's the last the, minute voter, but hey, they're voting. So what and that's all, exciting. What does all this mean for 2020? I think that maybe we're going into a really unique uh, historic period here. Um, the forces that play, that produced, at least largely produced, we think here in California, that really high turnout that we just saw, will still be, at least we think, um, or likely to be, still be in place in 2020. Normally, whenever you have a bump in those trends that we see over time, that bump goes away by the next election cycle. It's not sustained. It's very disappointing. We get excited, and then we got to go back to low. 2010 was a very good year for turnout in California. 2014 record low turnout right. year. So I think we have an opportunity that we could see, now presidential is always higher than a midterm, right. but we could see very high numbers also in that presidential election. And really think about it, these factors have been placed since really 2016. To see this over maybe three election cycles, it's a unique opportunity if we do the work uh, and seize on it, that we really could create, in a sense, close to a generation, particularly of young people, 
that voting becomes a habit. It's not just about one election cycle. Well, I guess we're going to see maybe we call that the Trump effect. We want to thank our guest, Mindy Romero <laughs> from USC. Up next, a post-election analysis with two astute observers of state politics, John Myers of the LA Times and Laura Rosenhall with Cal Matters. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, the November election brought us a new governor, a new legislature, but the results may have some thinking the more things change, the more they stay the same. Our guests, Laurel Rosenhall from Cal Matters and John Myers from the LA Times, might provide a more nuanced analysis than that. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. Thank you. So, John, let me start with you. Uh, Gavin Newsom's got to deal with some uh, things that Jerry Brown's leaving unfinished, uh, namely the Delta Tunnels and high speed rail. Uh, in his campaign, he seemed to be advocating for this half a loaf approach. You know, part of you know one of the two tunnels uh, maybe part of high-speed rail going through the valley San Joaquin Valley to the Silicon Valley but not to LA mm -hmm. what do you think is gonna happen uh, I don't know for sure I, I read the campaign message uh, possibly that way you're right mark but also a, a four-word phrase take a closer look I think that he wants to dig down into some of these I think he wants to see what what he makes of it and probably take the temperature of the politics of it I think the water tunnels uh, has a lot of um, has a lot of really balkanized kind of uh, uh, feelings about it. Uh, Delta in one place in Southern California, very popular Southern California water contractors and ag. The high speed rail is going to be tough. I mean, we just saw this audit recently come out from the state auditor that that suggested serious problems with the management of the money. I almost would see those differently. I think I think the train is going to be scrutinized in a different way. The water is a longer fight. It seems like to me. What do you think, Laurel? I just don't see Newsom tackling these things right away. Yep. Even if he does get to them, I don't see it at the top of the priority list. He's made it really clear that he respects Jerry Brown's legacy. He wants to protect it. And I would be shocked if he comes out of the gate um, just trying to sort of change course very quickly. I think that if, if changes happen, it will be further down the line. So, no pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so what do you think in terms of uh, how does uh, Gavin Newsom get out from under the shadow of Jerry Brown? He casts a pretty big shadow. He does. Um, but Newsom's already sort of talking about a lot of policy areas that would be his own, that are things that Brown hasn't shown a huge amount of interest in. Um, so Newsom's talking a lot about sort of preschool, um, early care for toddlers, even for pregnant women, um, obviously health care, expanding health care, whether it's single payer or some other model, um, and then housing and homelessness. So he's really sort of talking about that suite of issues that are things that Brown um, you know, he worked on, but they were not by any means his sort of signature issues. You can throw fracking on that pile, too, I suppose. Uh, you could, but I think that one thing that, in addition to Laurel's list, which is the right list, is uh, the structure of the tax system in California. Mm -hmm. And he has suggested that there's a conversation there that helps pay for some of these kind of programs. Absolutely. You did not see Jerry Brown tackle that, in part right. because we were in a deficit when Brown right. came in. I think it's going to be interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, that, that's the interpound gorilla for sure. Speaking of big, hairy, audacious goals, John. Um, the, uh, Gavin Newsom said he likes to, to do that kind of thing. He set out a fairly ambitious agenda on, on the campaign trail. Um, what issues do you think are going to get his immediate attention? What issues are going to kind of be put off? For uh, I, I think Laurel hit some of them. I think homelessness, housing um, issues, uh, f first and foremost. Um, I, think, I think trying to set a path for what the fiscal health of the state is looking forward. I mean, we just got this report of a 
unbelievably large uh, amount of uh, tax uh, windfall that is sitting in there, $29 billion between the two reserve counts, possibly by the summer of 2020. It really is amazing. When you think about it, he started with $20 billion yeah. deficits to where we are today. It's and, amazing. And so I think that Brown, uh, Newsom, pardon me, Freudian slip, I think that <laughs> Newsom has got, to, um, has got to articulate what he sees his path forward about the fiscal health of the state and how you do all of these things within the construct of not running uh, into the red. Uh, what do you think, Laurel? Well, I think the wildfire issue is going to be back in the Capitol right. next year in a big way. I mean, we've just seen horrifically the state's worst fire ever, most destructive, most deadly. And um, Newsom said the other day that the you know $1 billion legislation that Jerry Brown signed in September was a good first step. So that indicates to me that you know he's trying to figure out what what is the next step going to be on 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 that issue. So that's one thing that may have not been really a campaign right. talking point, but that's going to be on the front burner. And then I think for 2020, the tax issue that John mentioned, that's going to be huge, but probably not in year one. Probably this is all two. a lot to tackle, though. Oh, I mean, this is a lot for any governor. Right. right. Yeah. And the taxing, you think of split role, you think of taxing right. services. Right. I mean, it's incredible. But let me ask you this, Laurel. Um, they got a supermajority now in both houses mm -hmm. of the legislature. So even if Gavin Newsom wants to hold the line on state spending, is he going to have some trouble in light of the Democrat supermajority that can override his veto uh, and the fact that the LAO just published this report that the finances are fantastic? Anything's possible, but they haven't really used their supermajority to override a veto in, what, 40 Since years? Since Jerry Brown. Yeah, Jerry so Brown. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's the biggest threat. I think the more difficult thing to navigate is just going to be the kind of different shades of Democrats. You know, you've, if you're, with majorities that big, you know, potentially 60 Democrats in the Assembly and looking like about 28 in the Senate, um, they start the, to splinter off into different groups, right? right. A, Valley, a San Joaquin Valley Democrat is very different than a Bay Area Democrat. Right, and even a Bay Area Democrat who's a real labor-friendly Democrat might be different than a Bay Area Democrat who's more of a tech, Silicon Valley-type Democrat. And, and the one thing we have seen really quickly in this legislature with these large Democratic majorities over the last few years is sometimes it's harder to get to a simple majority, 41 and 21, especially 41 in the assembly, because you have so many Democrats trying to cut side deals, and it becomes very complicated, the math uh, in the politics. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about November propositions, that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with John Myers of LA Times and Laura Rosenhall with Cal Matters about the November election results. November ballot had a lot of propositions on it. Some passed, some significant ones didn't. So, Laurel, one of the big ones that didn't was this $8.9 billion water mm -hmm. bond. You know, the general rule on water bonds is that they pass. Uh, indeed, the last time one didn't pass was about 30 years ago. Uh, so why did this thing not pass? There were a lot of negative editorials about it. Um, it was not endorsed by the Democratic Party, which didn't oppose it, but, you know, given the... Um, number of voters in the state who vote Democratic. If they were looking at a slate card or something, it didn't say do this, you know? Um, and voters may have remembered that it was just in June when they are approved another water bond. So there may have been a feeling of just kind of like, maybe we don't need this. A bond fatigue on water. And also, this is the third yeah. of a series of bond issues. And maybe by the time they got to the third one, they said enough already. And plus the size of this. It's possible, certainly, right? I mean, it was almost $9 billion out of a $16 billion total take of bonds on this ballot. Um, I don't know. There wasn't a huge campaign for it. Um, it was probably too clever by half. The groups that put up all the money to get it on the ballot all had money allocated mm -hmm. for their particular projects. 
and dare I say it, you know, a plug for journalism, I think there might have been the power of newspaper editorials. There was not a single newspaper <laughs> right. in California that I can remember that said, vote for this water bond. They all said, this is kind of a weird a pay deal. pay to play. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it had that feel. Water's still an issue. I'm sure we're going to hear more about that later. But John, let me ask you about this one. Uh, another one that was kind of strange was this, the rent control uh, measure. Uh, polling indicates widespread public support for rent control, not to mention the whole desire of, of right. local control. This measure gave you both. It gave you the option as a local entity to, to go into rent control, to do that if you wanted to, but it, it went down to defeat pretty badly. It, it didn't just get go down to defeat. It got walloped. It got, it got uh, shellacked. I, I mean, to me, this is, this is a classic California ballot measure campaign. This is that campaign where the no side says, beware of unintended consequences. Do you know what really will happen, right? I mean, I'm almost intoning the television ads there. And I think that there were significant questions raised about what this would do in different communities. And um, that was hard to overcome. But it is fascinating, isn't it, that the polling shows that people are not opposed to rent control. They're worried about the cost of rents and apartments. And yet this got killed. Well, but that's the key thing. People like rent control and the Prop 10 campaign did not use the phrase rent control. Did they use the, yeah, they use didn't the, use right. that phrase. They, they kind of, their polling showed that the local control issue was um, going to poll better, and so they emphasized that, but I think it left a lot of voters confused, like, wait, does this do rent control? Does it not do rent control? And whenever you have a thing that's repealing another law, I think it's confusing. People are like, yeah. am I, you know, it's not automatically creating rent control. You know, another thing that kind of follows up on John's comment, that something typical about this one was the money spent. Right. That was yeah. the other thing. You the know, opponents outspent them by like three to one. million to 26 million. Right. Um, you outspend someone by three to one, you're probably going to win. Exactly. Uh, it sounds like. So let's talk about the other big one. That's the gas tax repeal mm -hmm. measure. That failed. Um, it seems like Californians over the, over the last few years have mm -hmm. been willing to tax someone else, you know, the millionaire's tax or whatever, but they're not so you know, interested in taxing themselves. This was a change. They said, okay, we're going to tax ourselves to improve roads. A sea change or a one-off? I'm seeing a pattern, honestly. I, you know, the voters agreed to the gas tax. They defeated the other proposition that would have... Um, expanded tax breaks on elderly homeowners, the Prop 13 sort of expansion. Um, and twice in the last few years, they have voted for sales and income tax increases between Prop 30 and then the extension that we had a couple years ago to kind of push Prop 30 many years into the future. I don't know. It looks to me that the evidence points that the anti-tax movement is just weaker than it once was. That's the two M's, I would call it. Uh, mechanics or message here, and I don't know which it is. Mechanics of the campaign, it was awkward to vote yes when you were against something. They were outspent. Very right, much outspent. Absolutely. But the messaging, yeah, you do have to wonder if there is not a tilt to the left of the California electorate, historically anti-tax or worried about tax, and maybe now not so much, even to the point that there are some groups now saying we should go back to the ballot and say earmark taxes for early child care or something else. I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion going We're forward. We're going to find out in 2020 if they put split roll, if that becomes the issue, which likely it's going to be. Um, if well, it's on the ballot already. Yeah, it's on the, so, yeah, so that's going to be, we'll see. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this, John. Uh, Prop 6, that, that gas tax repeal, was supposed to help uh, the Republicans that are in some of these competitive congressional seats. It, it didn't seem to work. No. It seems like Republicans virtually lost all those close races. Where do the Republicans go from here? I don't know. I think it would have been an uphill battle even if they had the money to run the campaign. I already said that. They didn't have the money to run the campaign. Mm -hmm. I think it was an uphill battle. This wave was real. It was a slow wave of Democrats in California, but it was a wave nonetheless. The party has uh, systemic issues, state and national. And it's like I was talking to somebody the other day, the state party has had problems for a while. The national problems have compounded it. 
Um, you've heard Republicans just now recently say the Republican Party as we know it in California is dead. Right. We've got to start all over. That, and that's the former uh, Republican uh, assembly leader. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think the future of the Republican Party is one of the most interesting questions in California politics right now. Internally, they're having a lot of disagreement. You have this sort of um, the the movement that calls itself New New Way, Assemblyman Chad Mays and Arnold Schwarzenegger, moderate Republicans who are kind of talking about the need to be welcoming of immigrants and embrace environmental policy, and they want to kind of see the party go that way as a way of growing and capturing more people. And then you have the... Uh, Assemblyman Travis Allen, who's running for uh, state chairman, he's completely the opposite. Embrace Trump, go hard right, and kind of be this be, be this other direction. You know, we're going to hear uh, about the, how the Republican Party is going to move forward with our next uh, guest, which is conservative columnist Joel Fox. But I want to thank our guests here, Laura Rosenhoff from Cal Matters and John Myers of the LA Times. Back in a moment. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So what do the election results mean for California's other party, the Republicans? Our guest is Joel Fox, editor and co-publisher of Fox and Hounds Daily, which covers uh, California politics. Um, his work, his background also includes work as president of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association for 19 years, uh, from 1986 to 98. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you, Mark. So um, Democrats have every statewide office for the third election cycle in a row. Right. Uh, they've won a supermajority in both houses of the legislature. And for the first time in 130 years, we have a Democrat following another Democrat as governor. Indeed, Gavin Newsom is the stuff really of Republican nightmares, the quintessential <laughs> Bay Area liberal. Uh, what can be done to save the Republican Party from extinction? Certainly is a one-party state right now, isn't it? Uh, it depends what the Democrats give the Republicans, because the Democrats could go wild with that kind of a scenario. Every constitutional office, two-thirds vote, they can raise taxes, they can put constitutional amendments on the ballot. So uh, if they go too far, that would help revive Republicans. And let's not forget, we've heard the death knell of Republicans before. Uh, at least I'm old enough to remember that after Barry Goldwater was defeated in the 64 presidential election, Republicans were dead and buried and until Nixon Ronald Reagan came along. Well, then also, yeah, yeah Nixon in 68. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, um, there is no shying away from the fact that the Republican Party in California is wounded. You know, uh, Bill Whalen, who's a former speechwriter for Governor Schwarzenegger, he's a fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, has stated that uh, given California's changing demographics, the Republican Party's problem is both its message and its messengers. Do you agree? Uh, I think Bill was uh, with, with, with Pete Wilson when he was a speechwriter, and, and he's a very astute guy, and I think there are elements to what he says. Uh, however, I think it's not so much the message and the messengers. I mean, look at some of the Orange County races where there were uh, Republican people of color or, or uh, Asian candidates or things like that that could identify with some of the minority groups down there. I think it's that the Republican label is tarnished nationwide. Uh, if you have that R behind your name, automatically people won't give you an opportunity to make your arguments. And I think it's that tarnished image, that tarnished label, that it really doesn't give Republicans uh, out of the starting blocks. You know, we were talking about this earlier, and you had mentioned that if you, if you're kind of the proof of your argument is at the local level, Republicans are getting elected. In fact, uh, is it, but these are considered nonpartisan races. Those are nonpartisan races. races. Right. You don't see that R on the ballot, and, and and traditionally statewide, Republicans do fairly well in city and county races. Has that changed since we've become so bitterly polarized? Well, I don't know that from this recent election, but traditionally Republicans do okay in those races. 
because they run on an agenda that the voters approve. You know, one of the interesting things about this last election was the failure of Prop 6, the attempt to repeal the, the gas tax. And some people think that now that taxes maybe aren't the third rail of politics that they used to be. Do you agree? It's going to be tested because uh, the greatest symbol of the tax revolt is Proposition 13. And they're going to start coming after that. Already a split role in which commercial property would be taxed differently than residential property is qualified for the ballot. Does that move forward? They're going to talk about dismantling Proposition 13. That's going to be the big argument. But there's no question that voters recently have passed income tax, sales tax, refused to repeal the gas tax. So there has to be there has been a shift on California's notorious uh, reputation as being tax resistant. So where does, the Cal where does the California Republican Party go from here? Do they focus maybe in the short term on the initiative process? Do they focus long term on maybe getting more attractive candidates uh, in terms of and issues like things like teacher tenure, public employee pensions? And where do they go from here? I think that the initiative process will be the vehicle or the tool to try to bring some balance to the ideological debate because they can't do anything in the legislature but they can go directly to the people that's why it was created to go around the legislature you go directly to the people with your arguments and in even in this past election uh, the ideological bent of the voters was not all one-sided in the initiative process and i don't think it will be so the republicans have an opportunity to present some of their arguments through the initiative process and what about long term in terms of issues like uh, public employee pensions that's increasingly becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue teacher tenure are those issues that might be something the Republicans can kind of latch on to? Well, um, I was part of an effort with Governor Schwarzenegger a few years back when those two issues were part of his ballot propositions, and they were defeated pretty handily. So there's potential for them to come back. Uh, and uh, those are issues of importance because as, as the pensions grow and governments have to put more and more money into pensions, they have less and less to put in services, and that's going to become an issue. Okay, well, I want to thank Joel Fox for joining us. This is Mark Kepler for The Matty Report. Thank you for joining us. Joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute. Providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.